Welcome to the third and final episode of season two of the Trump 101 podcast. For years, sexual assault has embroiled American universities in lawsuits and scandals, forcing institutions to implement policies, programs, and online tools. The recent allegations against Harvey Weinstein, Roy Moore, Kevin Spacey, Al Franken, and Matt Lauer only raise the stakes for universities in curbing sexual assault in a fair and just manner. But are universities capable of managing such a crime? Lara Bazelon, an associate professor at the University of San Francisco, doesn't think so. Professor Bazelon graduated from New York University's School of Law in 2000, then became a public defendant in Los Angeles. In 2008, she did a two-year fellowship at UC Hastings College of the Law here in San Francisco, then directed an innocence project in L.A. from 2013 to 2015. In 2017, Professor Bazelon was brought to the University of San Francisco to direct two clinics. In addition to teaching, Professor Bazelon has been the author of many opinion articles for The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Politico. Gabe invited Professor Bazelon to speak about how she thinks universities should handle sexual assault cases. Can you talk about the 2011 Obama-era sexual assault policies for campuses? And what is the Dear Colleague letter? So the Dear Colleague letter was written by the Office of Civil Rights, which at that time was kind of a little-known sub-agency within the Federal Department of Education. It was addressed to all educators across the country in all types of schools, mainly though directed at colleges and universities who received federal funding, which is basically all of them. The Dear Colleague letter made it clear that Title IX, which is a federal statute, covered sexual harassment and sexual violence that occurred on campuses and that schools were directed to take these allegations seriously, more seriously than they had in the past because there had been a groundswell of complaint that legitimate accusations of sexual assault had been brushed under the rug in certain cases. Title IX is a federal law implemented during the Nixon administration. It originally focused on gender parity in high school and collegiate sports. But over time, Title IX has morphed into a law that protects students from sexual assault on campus with the belief that assault and harassment deprive students of equal access to an education. And so the Dear Colleague letter basically said, no more of that. We are going to put in place some policies that are guidelines for you to follow. And although the guidelines never had the force of law, they carried this significant stick, which was if the schools did not follow the guidelines, they could come under federal investigation for violating Title IX and lose their federal funding. And what they essentially said is, you need to set up an adjudication process where both sides can present witnesses and evidence, and you have to use in your finding the lowest possible standard of proof, which is preponderance of the evidence. Meaning, if one student accuses another student of sexual assault, you have to find the accused student responsible if the level of proof rises to anything above 50%. And then at that point, the student is subject to the school's disciplinary procedures. Okay. And in terms of kind of the positives of that and the negatives of that, what were your kind of opinions when it came to the new policies? The positives were that it really shined a bright spotlight on what was a significant problem. And it wasn't just the Office of Civil Rights. President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden came out publicly with a campaign saying, it's on us. 
We're going to help schools do a better job of preventing and responding to sexual assault on their campuses. Because college should be a place where our young people feel secure and confident so they can go as far as their talents will take them. Talking about the fact that sexual violence, particularly against women on college and university campuses, was a problem and somewhat of a scandal in that things were happening to women, they were being violated, and they were not getting any justice. And in a lot of cases, that was true. And so Title IX really compelled schools to take a hard look at what they were doing. It was well-intentioned, but unfortunately, at least in my opinion, it had negative consequences from the perspective of affording both sides due process. So this is the kind of your central argument in a lot of your opinion pieces. You were mentioning that it didn't give both sides due process. Were there any other kind of flaws in in this uh, in this Title IX policy? I thought so. I mean, my big concerns about the policy were, one, I thought and believe that the standard of proof is too low. It essentially requires schools to make a finding, even if they're 49 percent sure that the allegations are not true. Because these proceedings are so high stakes for both sides, and because in many of these cases the accused student is suspended or even expelled, it seems to me that we need a higher standard of proof. It's true that it's not a criminal proceeding and that if you are found responsible by your school, you cannot go to jail or prison. But being permanently separated from your education is, in the words of this Harvard law professor, Janet Hawley, the end of a life plan. And given that that's a potential consequence, I think we need a standard that is not beyond a reasonable doubt, which is what we have in criminal court, but the middle, which is clear and convincing evidence, which is a higher burden of proof. So that's one critique I have of it. Another critique I have of it is that it expressly says that there will be no mediation in these cases. So nothing short of a disciplinary process is appropriate. It also defines sexual violence very broadly as any physical sexual act perpetrated against the will of another person or without their consent because of the ingestion of alcohol or drugs. Given that that is a very broad spectrum of behavior, so we're talking about anything from an unwanted touch or an unwanted kiss to rape, it seems to me that it makes sense if the parties agree to it and want it to offer alternatives to a full-blown adversarial system, such as mediation or restorative justice. And there are instances where actually both parties have sought that out rather than go through a more adversarial process. The Dear Colleague letter specifically said, you can't do that. So that's sort of another issue that I have with it. Professor Bazelon then explained a specific example of on-campus sexual assault where she disagreed with the outcome. It was out of the University of California in San Diego, and it involved a male who's called John Doe. They've never been publicly identified. And Jane Rowe. And Jane Rowe, I think four or five months after the interactions between the two, they had dated briefly, brought three allegations to the Title IX coordinator at UCSD. And the first allegation was that after attending a party, they went back to his room and he raped her. The second allegation was the following morning, he digitally penetrated her without her consent. And then the third allegation was some months later when he realized that she was going to file a complaint against him, he threatened to retaliate against her. She was interviewed twice by the Title IX coordinator. That individual made a finding that the rape allegation and the retaliation allegation were not supported by a preponderance of the evidence. So it was below the 50 50%. Okay. Exactly. And 
Elena Dalcourt, the Title IX coordinator, went to this board, which was, I think, two faculty members and a grad student, and said, I don't find sufficient evidence of the rape or the retaliation, but I do find sufficient evidence that the morning after Jane Doe says there was a rape, John Doe digitally penetrated her against her will. And this went to a hearing. Ms. Dalcourt interviewed 14 witnesses. When John Doe asked for their statements, he was told he couldn't have them. When he asked for their names, he was told he couldn't have them. At the hearing, Jane testified behind a screen, and it's the record is murky, but John Doe and his lawyer say that two of the people out of the three on the panel, because of where they were positioned in the room, couldn't actually see her. And if that's true, that's concerning because, of course, looking at someone is really critical to making a credibility finding. Mm. On direct examination, she was asked about the allegation that they weren't going forward on, which was the rape allegation. And she said something to the effect of, I don't remember if I said yes or if I said no. She then acknowledged that the same day that she says he digitally penetrated her against her consent, they consensually had sex that night. So you're talking about a digital penetration allegation that is bracketed by an allegation of rape that they did not find was supported by 50% of the evidence, and she acknowledged, I might have said yes, and then bracketed by um, a sexual encounter that she says was consensual. And John Doe had 32 questions that he submitted that he wanted to ask, and he wasn't allowed to question her directly, and that makes sense for all kinds of reasons. You don't want to re-traumatize the person. So the hearing officer was in charge of asking the questions, and she refused to ask all but nine of them. And when John Doe's attorney tried to talk, she said, you're not allowed to speak. And at the conclusion of this, they found not that he was guilty of sexual assault, but rather a lesser violation of sexual misconduct. They recommended, I think, that he be suspended for one or two semesters. It then went to the dean of students to mete out the ultimate punishment. And without any explanation, she increased his suspension to a year. Mm -hmm. He then appealed to the provost, and they increased his suspension again with no explanation to a year and a quarter, which is a de facto expulsion because you have to apply for readmission and no one would readmit you. So my question is, Is are schools a, a properly equipped to handle these cases? Do they have the proper legal knowledge to do, to do these type of cases? That's a great question. I think the comeback to people like me is you are asking them to turn into these mini criminal courts. And that's not what this is about. This isn't a criminal courtroom. This is a school disciplinary setting. Schools are the experts here. They have their own proceedings. They always have. Why should they do anything different from, say, a theft allegation or a plagiarism allegation? They are best suited to put procedures in place to come to these outcomes. And no one's going to prison or jail they're being disciplined for violating codes of behavior. And schools are best positioned to determine what the code should be and whether there's been a violation. And so I think that for schools to be set up in a way to actually do this discipline, and they should, because a lot of times victims don't have recourse to criminal courts for all kinds of reasons. They don't want to go through the process because it's difficult and miserable. Prosecutors can't prove these cases beyond a reasonable doubt, often because too much time has passed or it's a he said, she said, they should have recourse to some kind of justice, and the school should be prepared to give it to them. But at this point, I think they need 
training. I think they need standards, and I think they need to put in place a more robust process. Through intimidation and coercion, the failed system has clearly pushed schools to overreach. With the heavy hand of Washington tipping the balance of her scale, the sad reality is that Lady Justice is not blind on campuses today. This unraveling of justice is shameful. So that's a good segue, I think, into uh, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos's uh, new proposals. What exactly is she proposing? What is she trying to change in the uh, Obama-era Title IX policies? So Betsy DeVos came in as Secretary of Education, and she was asked at her confirmation hearing, are you going to stick with the Dear Colleague letter? And from the beginning, it was clear that she had real doubts about it. What she did next was have a series of listening sessions with survivor groups and also with representatives of college students, almost all men, who said that they had been wrongly found uh, found in, in violation of student codes and, and expelled. She then gave a speech at George Mason University, and she went into some detail about these cases, the kinds of cases that I just talked to you about where the outcomes were really questionable. And then she also went into some cases on the other sides where victims did not get justice. And her ultimate conclusion was these guidelines are weaponizing the federal government. I think that was the word she used, against the schools, and they are creating bad outcomes. And that needs to change. So I want to read a quote from one of your Washington Post articles. This is the one that you published with John Villasenor from the Brookings Institute. So, quote, DeVos, who observed that a system without due process ultimately serves no one in the end, has a right to address this topic. And she has her work cut out for her. The rhetoric that dominates the debate often obscures the notion that of ensuring fundamental fairness to both sides when adjudicating sexual assault accusation, end quote. So my question for you is, what will it take to ensure fairness for both sides? I think it's the more robust protections that I was talking about earlier. So making sure that there is a real opportunity for cross-examination. And I'm not suggesting that the accused person directly confront the accuser. As I said, I think that's a bad idea. But perhaps a student advocate who's trained, someone who can pose questions. Because in our system, cross-examination is the greatest legal engine for determining the truth. But I also think that Sadly, this issue has really cleaved the left, and it's really cleaved feminists, where the dominant position with Democratic senators and mainstream feminist groups and women's advocacy groups is to basically tie together Betsy DeVos, who's a controversial and much maligned figure who's associated with other rolling back of rights that are very objectionable with addressing the flaws in Title IX and essentially saying to anyone who believes that it's a good idea to take a hard look at the Dear Colleague letter, you are exactly like Betsy DeVos and you are a rape apologist and you are disgusting 
and you are not a real feminist. And I think that is so unfortunate because it leaves people like me who consider themselves real feminists, lifelong Democrats, certainly not Trump supporters, feeling that somehow we're doing something wrong when all we're really saying is we believe in due process. So I come at it not just as a feminist, but as someone who has spent my life representing people in criminal court and in other disciplinary proceedings where it's vital that they have the ability to defend themselves. And I see what happens when they don't. I mean, being a law professor at a liberal arts college in San Francisco, I can guess that you've gotten some pushback from having this position. Is, is this true? I've gotten a lot of pushback. Um, on Twitter, I've been called disgusting. I've been told I should be fired, that I'm a moron, that I'm an Amway sales lady, that I'm a rape apologist. So yes, there's been a lot of pushback. And what I say to my students is, if you go out into the arena, you should expect to be hit. Apart from social media, has there been any pushback within San Francisco itself, within within the school, within the university? You know, I'm really proud to say that the university has stood very firmly behind my right of free speech and my right of academic freedom. And no one has ever told me, we don't want you to do this. We don't want you to say this. We don't want you to write this. And it makes me very proud to be here. So my last question for you is that for a president who has been you know, accused of sexual assault, um, you know, I think it was about a year ago that the Hollywood Access tapes came out. Why should we listen to his secretary of education on an issue that he has become involved in? That is such a great question. There are so many reasons to be incredibly mistrustful. I mean, first of all, the Access Hollywood comments by the president are just to me still to this day unbelievable, never mind the documented history of his assaulting and approving of the assault of, of women and his treatment of women and the way that he talks about women. There's also Secretary DeVos's credentials or perhaps lack of credentials and being in her position. She was confirmed only by the barest of majorities. She has rolled back protections against transgender students. The Trump administration itself has rolled back critical policies, including DACA, including climate control policies. All of these things were designed to protect our environment, to protect children who came here fleeing from violence, not through any thoughtful decision of their own, not through any will of their own. And all of this leads to the conclusion that we should be incredibly suspicious and mistrustful of anything that the Trump administration seeks to do. And I completely agree with that skepticism and mistrust and suspicion. And at the same time, I feel that as a public citizen with an opinion and some expertise in this area, it's my civic duty to contribute to the notice and comment process and to take the secretary at her word when she says that that's what she wants and that she'll take the the thoughts and the findings of people who have studied this issue into serious account. But I will tell you that if what ends up coming out of this process is like so much of what we've seen and what I've described to you, I will be the first person to condemn her.
Thank you for listening to the third and final episode of season two of Trump 101, the podcast where we tell the stories of university community members affected by the Trump administration. You can listen to more of our work at trump101podcast.com and follow us at trump101podcast on Twitter and Facebook. Special thanks to Professor Bazelon. Thank you to Tin Din for graphic design. Thank you to the University of San Francisco Media Lab for providing the studio and equipment. And a big thank you to the USF Media Studies Department. They are sponsoring our SoundCloud this season, and we wouldn't be here without their support. News clips are provided by CBS News. We want to thank all of our listeners who have committed to listening to this podcast, who have expressed their love for our podcast. This is actually our last one, um, and we are so thankful uh, to have been given the opportunity to do such a project. And since this is our last episode, we just really want to express how important this was to all of us and how we loved gathering the skills we've acquired from USF classes and even our internships. Uh, And having this podcast has become like a culmination of all the things that we want to improve on and go forth doing. So thank you for listening um, after all these, how many episodes? It's been nine Nine. now. It's been nine now. This this, something um, uh, this podcast shows is that, you know, you can't really create something great without bringing a lot of people together. All these skills that... You know, some of us lack and some of us have, it all comes together to create something really beautiful.